Hello, everyone. Welcome to Energy Security Cubed, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and the world, energy, economics, and the environment. I'm your host, CEO of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Ogle. For today's podcast, we're featuring an interview with Leonardo Beltran, Distinguished Visiting Fellow at Columbia University's Centre for Global Energy Policy and a certified expert on Mexico. But before we get into that, let's have a quick discussion with our Energy Security Forum Coordinator, Joe Callan, about the news stories affecting global energy security this week. What, what are you up to, Joe? I'm doing well, Kelly. Uh, a little bit worried about uh, global nuclear war, but uh, you know that, that typically is something on my mind anyways, so well, it's you know, not Joe, like that much of a change. <laughs> it was really on, my, on the minds of my parents and your grandparents when, when I was a child, because it was, you know, we were in the middle of the Cold War in the 60s. That was the, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, other events that were really the uh, pointy part of the spear when it came to MAD or mutually assured destruction. And it seems like uh, things are maybe escalating. Are we gonna, we're getting into that, aren't we? We'll uh, get into it right now, actually. Um, there's a bit of a sobering development where Russian President Vladimir Putin has announced the mobilization of up to 300,000 Russian reservists to fight in Ukraine. Now, the exact scale of how many people will actually be mobilized is up to question. I read uh, a few minutes ago that according to Western standards for what would count as a reservist, where they get either monthly or annual training, there's only around 5,000 available to Russia. So uh, there's a big question about if they can even train enough to make a difference in Ukraine. But there's also the worry about nuclear escalation, which is uh, on my mind right now. So Russia's recent losses around Kharkiv have seriously shaken perceptions of Russian power, not only in the West, but apparently among its allies and neutral powers. Conflicts are popping up around the former USSR and India's Prime Minister Modi admonished Putin for the war at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit in Samarkand last week. Uh, interesting, Joel. This kind of es- escalation will likely harden Western resolve to react with stronger tools of economic warfare against Russia. Um, t- on Tuesday, uh, Democratic and Republican U.S. senators proposed secondary sanctions to help enforce the G7 price caps on Russian crude oil and products exports, which will be phased in late 2022 and early 23. Um, I'm still, the jury's out in my mind on whether this is going to work, but uh, more presently, uh, current oil prices are holding at lower levels due to the global economic slowdowns that continue in particular, the specter of lower demand from China due to COVID zero policies and lower demand in the United States from interest rate rises and summer driving and and a lower demand in Europe because of uh, an impending recession. Low oil prices will likely make it easier to punish Russian energy since customers won't be as desperate, in my opinion, to secure whatever supplies they can at this point. Anyways, that's, we, you know, we'll see what the fall and winter bring. But at this point, there is some credibility toward economic pressure on Russia. Yeah, we'll, we will see this coming winter whether there's a big increase in demand for something like diesel for uh, power and heating uh, if there is a cold winter. And I've, I've actually been seeing some indications from Japan's meteorological agency said that they expect a cold winter. But if uh, that does not happen, uh, we can see Russia's decision to cut Europe off of natural gas, 
which is the primary cause of that specific set of impending recessions as sort of contributing to the weakness in oil demand that could make a price gap easier to enforce just because lower economic activity in Europe will reduce demand for oil. More details on the price cap are still forthcoming though. And there are still questions about whether it will be structured in a way that effectively keeps the price lower. Yeah, time will tell. I guess the most important thing in, in this point is that the Russians, uh, it's just awful the way that the, you know, historically Russians just shoved more and more bodies at an issue like this, like in the, you go back to Stalingrad, you go back to the first war, um, other conflicts in other centuries. Um, this is awful. Uh, because the people won't be trained. What else is up, Joe? Well, another thing that we should talk about briefly is, um, so United States Senator Joe Manchin said on Tuesday that he would unveil the text of his energy infrastructure permitting bill today. So this is a piece of legislation that was promised to him in exchange for his support for the Inflation Reduction Act. So Joe Manchin released a one-pager in early July that gives a brief rundown of the components that we can expect in the full text. Yeah, we had hoped that we could have an update for the, for the podcast, and we may have one by tomorrow. But in, in what uh, Senator Manchin put out includes the creation of a list of 25 strategically important projects for prioritization, setting maximum timelines for permitting reviews, and setting a statute of limitations to limit the range of court challenges, which is... I think this is really important, could set the table for other jurisdictions, including Canada, as far as some of the gridlock and uh, absolute stalemates that are part of the environmental and regulatory reviews. The one pager also mentions all types of energy infrastructure, including critical minerals, nuclear, uh, electrical transmission lines, and pipelines. Democratic Senate leader Schumer seems to be on board, but there are indications that obstructionist Republican and Democrats might uh, delay or scrap the legislation. That, it's never over till it's over, right? You know, it's, no, no. There's a long way to go here and it gets slower every review of, the, of a bill. Anything else, Joe? Well, uh, last up, I just wanted to talk briefly about some of the workforce challenges being caused by the energy transition. So on Monday, uh, Pathways Alliance President Kendall Dilling said that the $12 billion, which is expected to be spent by the major oil sands producers in Alberta, uh, will likely strain Alberta's labor force. So this is understandable since carbon capture and storage is a new technology, which hasn't quite gotten to the large scales that exist with uh, established industries. And many locations suited for storing the CO2, such as the North Sea, Australia, the Gulf Coast, and the Persian Gulf, will be competing for expertise globally. You know, we've talked about these issues, you know, in other times, Joe, and um, when we talked about the capacity to rebuild nuclear power plants, where the skilled labor force has been hollowed out by decades of regulatory blockage. And, and just as equally as importantly, you know, you know, and I hate to say my, like I'm a baby boomer and uh, a lot of expertise is retiring, you know, as, as in, in, the, in the next decade. Um, and I don't know that uh, the new worker, the shift change that's occurred in in labor is is just not that much interest in this these things. And you know, Joe, you've you've heard me talk at conferences or moderate panels where, you know, we need trades, and uh, that, that's the, the the capacity building that's really going to be in demand here. And I'm and I worry about this as a uh, because it'll just cause the economics to continue to erode and the timeline to be longer and longer. 
you know, Alberta oil sands companies will be looking to stagger these investments to make sure they're not competing for a relatively small pool of labor. It seems to me that's what's going to happen. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I'd agree. And um, this sort of brings up something interesting that I feel should be discussed, which is the uh, energy security impact of immigration and labor policy. So the, the question we might ask is, uh, could federal control over immigration be better streamlined for the labor requirements of the energy transition? And of course, this doesn't only affect carbon capture and storage projects, but also, let's say, transmission, heat pump installation, you know, solar and wind turbines, hydro, nuclear, everything. You know, like th- th- these are very front-loaded um, capital requirements and labor requirements that it's going to be difficult to uh, see how things get done without um, some sort of retooling of how we deal with labor. Well, I'll tell you what, and I'm going to just, you know, put up a flag here for uh, federal provincial relations and federalism. I think that the federal government must, at a minimum, participate with the provinces as to how labor fills the void of how you develop the resource sector, because guess what? Don't forget all the resources are owned by the provinces. And this is where the construct of labor and the capital have to meet. This is something that we should keep an eye on, Joe. Let's, uh, let's dive a little deeper into these issues and make sure that we're keeping the uh, compass pointed north for where and when we see what happens here. Is that it, Joe? Yep, that's all for today, Kelly. Okay, let's switch over to our interview with Leonardo Beltran and see what people think about discussions about Mexico, North American energy security, and, and the new USMCA. Thanks a lot. Not a problem, Kelly. For today's interview, recorded September 20, 2022, we discussed the past, present, and future of Mexico's role in North American energy security. Very pleased to have joined me today from Mexico City, Leonardo Beltran. Leonardo is a distinguished visiting fellow at Columbia University's Center for Global Energy Policy. That's two weeks in a row as we had R.J. Johnson on last week. Um, He's also a non-resident fellow at the Institute of the Americas and an executive fellow at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy right here in Calgary. Leonardo was also Deputy Secretary of Energy in Mexico from 2012 to 2018 and was previously a board member of Mexico State Energy Company, Pemex. Thanks for joining me on Energy Security Cubed, Leonardo. On the contrary, thanks very much to you, Kelly. It's a great opportunity for me to be here. And certainly after discussing with RJ, I'm sure the conversation got really exciting. Yeah, he's a very interesting guy. I've known him for a long time and and his grasp and uh, breadth of knowledge about global energy issues is abundant and it was quite a bit of fun. And I'm pretty excited to... uh, talk to you as well, because, you know, in the Western Hemisphere, Mexico is unique in its approach to energy. And I think I'd like to start off by talking about that a bit um, and talk about Pemex, since you spent time on its board and, you know, are completely familiar with the entity in your uh, whole life. While Mexico is not a member of OPEC, it has, it set a significant precedent for later events when it nationalized its oil industry in 1938. You know, and this is a, I, I, apologize for a really broad question, but I think it sets the table for our listeners to understand. Um, Can you give us a gauge of the effectiveness of uh, resource conservation, economic development, and environmental perspective under the auspices of a national oil company? Well, certainly. Thanks very much, uh, Kelly. And and of course, um, you know, it's uh, just to give a sense, 
Pemex is the largest company in Mexico and the largest in Latin America. So uh, it, it's quite uh, an important company. Um, it produces now around 1.8 uh, million barrels per day of crude oil and uh, certainly natural gas and some other products. But um, in, in terms of um, the effectiveness of, uh, of, of the use of, of resources, uh, certainly there are areas of opportunity and you can compare operations with different operators in um, you know, Latin America or other geographies. But um, you know, the uh, breadth and the uh, scope of activities of the company, it's amazing. No? It's, in exploration and production, is in refining, is in petrochemicals, it's all over the 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 board in uh, hydrocarbon production and uh, development. But um, perhaps one area of opportunity certainly is in terms of taking advantage of its natural gas. Today, uh, Pemex uh, only take advantage of around 90% of the production. So 10% of uh, natural gas production is flared or vented. So that's a huge area of opportunity, not only in terms of you know, uh, seizing a natural resource, reducing the environmental footprint, but also bring to market a product that today we are actually net importers. So that would be a great area of opportunity for Pemex, certainly, but for other companies that are in the business of uh, implementing and developing technology for uh, conservation for gas, uh, either in a solution or a natural gas production uh, or dry natural gas production in general. Uh, regarding uh, the, the general use of the resources, um, now Mexico has been in a declining phase of production in, in terms of crude oil. Um, it reached um, a, a peak of production around 15 years ago in 2004, uh, when uh, the, the platform of production was around 3.4 million barrels per day. Today, it's only 1.8. It's somewhat stabilizing, but certainly, uh, you know, uh, there's plenty of opportunity to actually try to replenish uh, that platform. And uh, certainly with, uh, you know, the different uh, geopolitical challenges that are arising globally, uh, Mexico and, and Canada can actually become friendlier or, uh, you know, partners of choice in these particular products. You know, that brings up some, uh, some interesting points I'd like to ask you. Like, a, let's go back to the flaring and, and, uh, and uh, lost value. You know, Canada is the 
I'm just going to outright say it, a global leader in in uh, in conservation of of uh, natural gas. We you know flaring after being in the industry for all those years, it's just not allowed, right? You you can you can test a well for a certain number of hours, 48, 72, 96 hours, and then you tie it in or you shut it in. And um, is this not a great opportunity for for Canada to collaborate with Mexico in, in helping? capture that last part of the resource i I, i'm surprised that uh, or maybe i'm missing something but is that not an area we could work together absolutely in fact at some point the uh, mexican government they elaborated and partnered with the albertan government to actually work on solution gas conserved uh, precisely because of the strong regulation you have in alberta and also because of the companies that have been able to develop that technology. So uh, today it's a great opportunity for uh, Albertan Canadian companies in general, but uh, Albertan to come to Mexico and, uh, you know, um, try to help uh, reduce that uh, environmental footprint, but, you know, bring to market much needed product, uh, not only in Mexico, but elsewhere. But that, and that leads to my second question, and in this segment, uh, Leonardo, um, the elephant in the room is the, the state-owned enterprise that is quite adamant about how and what people do, and how could an investor, or how could the, you know, face the same problem in Canada with regulation and environmental concerns, how can the investor be certain, or at least close to certain, that he's going to come down there and do something and it's not going to get uh, expropriated. And that leads to the second part of the question. What's the potential to get back to somewhere in the neighborhood of plus or minus 3 million barrels per day for Mexico? Is that possible? Or is, I, I would think it is given new technologies on, in the, in the uh, aspects of uh, com- recompletions, completions in horizontal and drilling and fracking, et cetera. Um, so sorry for the long-winded question, but um, what's the certainty of capital and, and what is Mexico's potential? Well, no, uh, certainly I appreciate that, uh, Kellyanne. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, perhaps what you have been observing with the current administration, it's um, uh, somewhat like a different attitude towards private sector participation. But let me stress the fact that uh, irrespective of the changes in policy, you still have um, an architectural institutionality that uh, serves the rule of law. Uh, So today you have certainly uh, acts and different laws and bylaws in in the country, Uh, but also you have uh, international commitments which, for instance, is the recently signed U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, which in the end, it's a a prerogative, uh, it's a platform, it's a legal framework that the three countries have to abide by, and uh, that provide the certainty that would be required for any private investor to come either to Canada, to the US or, or Mexico, and be certain that those provisions inserted in the uh, trade treaty are gonna withstand the different uh, changes in policy that uh, you can observe whether if you are on the left or on the right, uh, it doesn't matter as long as you have these um, strong regulation and a treaty that has to be supportive of the rule of law in, in any of the jurisdictions. 
Now, that certainly it provides the certainty and the mechanisms and the different uh, dispute resolution alternatives if uh, conflict arises. But that does not mean that the policies cannot change. And with uh, elections, you know, you can lean to one end or to the other, but in the end, you have this uh, institutionality that can help you in uh, advancing, you know, those swings in, in policy. Now, regarding, you know, areas of opportunity uh, for Mexico and Canada, I think it's fantastic the wealth of resources that the region has. Uh, you know, Mexico, U.S., and Canada are uh, the U.S. It's the top uh, producer worldwide. Canada, it's one of the the top, and Mexico as well. We have a very integrated economy. So the top trading uh, partner of the U.S. is Mexico, and the second top uh, trading partner is Canada. So uh, it only makes sense to continue strengthening the uh, ties, trade ties between the three countries. And especially if there are areas of opportunity where you can actually have dedicated a lot of resources and you have a specialization, like we were mentioning, solution gas conserved. So how to reduce uh, the, the environmental footprint in particular, but how to bring or give value to a resource that today is wasted and it's badly needed. You know? So I think that would be a, a great area of opportunity. And, and in terms of the potential to improve uh, production, certainly there's a, a lot of room to, to do that. Uh, but today, if you would like to do that independently of the national oil company, probably it would be rather difficult but if you partner with uh, the national oil company, certainly there's opportunity to uh, bring technology and to continue extracting and, and promoting um, the improvement of the oil and gas platform of production. Thanks a lot. That's, that's great. I, I appreciate that overview, Leonardo. Let's move downstream now. Um, you know, Mexico's been known for decades as being a major crude oil exporter, especially of the, of the heavy Maya blend that the U.S. refineries on the Gulf Coast use. However, Mexico is also a major importer of refined petroleum products, particularly from those same refineries. And this is, I know this is due to change over the coming years as the Mexican government plans to end oil exports to non-PMEX-owned refineries in 2023. How is it that Mexico still imports products from the United States when it has substantial domestic refining capacity? Well, I, I, I guess the, uh, the challenge there, it's because one, the infrastructure that it's uh, uh, present in Mexico, we have six refineries. The, the last uh, commissioned refinery was 1979. <laughs> so it's a very old infrastructure. It has been uh, somewhat neglected in terms of, you know, the maintenance that it's required. Then the other component, not only infrastructure and maintenance, but, uh, you know, the diet or the feedstock that uh, goes into those refineries, 
uh, are blended because of, of the characteristics of our crude oil. And given those characteristics, they produced uh, refined products, certainly, but as a byproduct, you have coke. And that coke, it's really depleting those facilities. So it's a problem of infrastructure, dated infrastructure. It's a problem of maintenance. It's a problem of feedstock. And probably today, uh, certainly you could think of it's natural to actually invest in a new uh, refinery if the outlook for, for instance, the use of uh, internal combustion engines would be for several uh, decades to come. But the thing is that the automotive sector has already stated, and many countries have already stated that uh, there's going to be an end to the use of internal combustion. And if that is the case, then probably it would make sense not to invest in a new refinery, uh, which would have a very li limited time to actually uh, make it profitable uh, and recuperate the overall investment, which as of now, it stands in around 18 billion US dollars uh, for only one refinery, and actually it would not be sufficient to uh, replace all imports from refined products. So uh, I guess uh, it, in terms of the potential to be uh, not dependent on uh, imported products, refined products, I think uh, the outlook doesn't look very good. Uh, but certainly today, we have access to plenty of products in the Gulf Coast, but also from Europe or from other jurisdictions. And I, uh, I would rather invest in other uh, segments of the business rather than investing in uh, refining. Yeah, I can't disagree. The rising tide of... Uh... GHGs and climate change, um, you'd have to be a high risk taker to take a chance on a refinery, given that, you know, you need a decade to pay it to, you might, you need half a decade to build it, you need a, another decade to pay for it. And by then, it, you know, if, if all the talking heads that talk about uh, the end of uh, internal combustion engines, etc., are right, which I don't necessarily agree with, but that's a topic for another discussion, um, then you would never get your return on the asset. Let's talk about Canada a little bit because I, you know, you you are, I appreciate your broad breadth of knowledge about North American energy security and and Mexico's that same crude oil Maya crude is often compared with Canada's Western Canadian Select or WCS due to their similar density and sulfur content. With what the Mexican government is suggesting and seeking to divert up to a million barrels of crude exports away from American refineries complex, uh, could you see an increased need for Canadian oil going into the Gulf Coast? I mean, certainly, uh, you know, the closer you are to the demand, uh, the better you are positioned to actually supply that market. So uh, in, in that regard, I think uh, Canada has a, a great advantage being just, you know, north to the largest market in the world. Uh, second, you know, in terms of uh, the platform of production in Mexico, I... Uh, as of now, it has been stabilizing a, a little bit, but the trend has been negative. 
So unless you have additional investments to actually improve production, and that does not have to come only from public sector monies, um, I don't see a, an outlook in which Mexico would be ramping up uh, production. Having said that, certainly the opportunity for Canada, it's there, not only because of location, but also because of the trade agreements that you already have, and certainly the partnerships that Canadian companies already enjoy with uh, US companies and, and elsewhere. But uh, certainly the, the location, it puts uh, a very nice spot, uh, Canada, to actually supply those needs. No? So. I, I want to change gears here a little bit because, and we, you know, we, we mentioned you mentioned it briefly about ICE vehicles, and and um, you know, there's a lot of discussion presently here and in your country and globally about vehicle electric vehicles, and you know, part of USMCA and you know, one of the not only sticking points, but the premise of the agreement is the supply chains around automotive parts and construction in North America, and. Um, you know, due to the importance of vehicle manufacturing in Ontario, there was a major fur when it seemed as though U.S. tax credits would not apply to vehicles made with Canadian components. You know, your country is an even more prominent vehicle and parts manufacturer than Canada. Were there similar concerns around the bill from Biden, the Biden administration, about this issue? Or not, or Absolutely. Not? Absolutely. It, it, it was, uh, I mean... The, the nature of the relationship between Canada, US and Mexico, it's indivisible. So, you know, if you are uh, today exporting one out of every six cars worldwide, why would you try to do a, a separated effort to uh, get market share in a particular product? It only makes sense to strengthen ties. It only makes sense to coordinate efforts to perhaps certainly specialize in different products. And certainly some products can be made better in Canada, some others in the US and some others in Mexico. But you know, promoting a policy that would not be conducive to strengthening integration and improving, uh, for instance, the automotive sector, it was uh, quite a, a challenge to, to be observing from the Mexican viewpoint and certainly the Canadian viewpoint. But in the end, uh, the, uh, the result of the recent uh, Inflation Reduction Act is that uh, it has to be made North American. So that creates a great opportunity to actually continue strengthening the value chains and creating new trains of production, which potentially would be we would be observing, given the fact that uh, over the last several months, there have been announcements of new investments for, uh, in particular, for uh, electric vehicles. So I think it's um, it's a perfect opportunity to align policies. Certainly, the Inflation Reduction Act is a great uh, opportunity to align those incentives. And there's only a, a need to for Mexican authorities to follow suit and align those uh, budgetary incentives to improve production in the region and certainly uh, improve or, or expand market share of 
electric vehicles. Today, uh, the region only uh, produces one out of every 10 electric vehicles. So there's plenty of opportunity to grow given the already existing powerhouse we have in internal combustion engines. When you say in the region, Leonardo, could you be more specific? Are you talking about North America? Yes, correct. Okay, so one out of t- only one out of 10 electric vehicles is built in North America. Correct. Yeah, I, I suppose when you think about China, that, that just, and... Uh, <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. It seeks out yeah. very 10. Yes, yeah. Um, so talking about that, wh- where is Mexico in the transition to EVs and, and in the, the build-out of component manufacturing? And I guess a further question is, how's Mexico's electrical grid going to be able to withstand the addition of electric, electrified transportation? Well, certainly that. that's, uh, that's quite a challenge. Uh, and of course, given the current policy, which is reliant only on having the uh, state-owned companies being the drivers of economic growth and development, um, certainly it's, it's quite a challenge. Um, but um, in terms of electrification, Something positive that we have been observing is that uh, at least now in the policy documents issued by this administration, they are foreseeing the use of um, electric vehicles for public transportation uh, in the coming future. And it's, uh, it's also striking because irrespective of the status of the new uh, refinery, Dos Bocas refinery, in the outlooks, uh, they observed that uh, public transportation would be electric. And that's one of the main uh, components of the nationally determined contribution of Mexico to meet its environmental goals under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. So um, it it seems to be like somewhat of a disconnection between oil and gas policy and electric policy or power policy. Yeah, at this point, you know, there's a a lot of interesting friction and combat, no, I'm going to use the word loosely, combativeness between the sources and uses of energy in all spheres. And, you know, we're in a, we're in some awfully tough spots here with uh, realism re- rearing its head about how you power things and, uh, and or move around. Um, and, and, you know, talking about taking this to another level, um, I want to talk about tra- uh, the metals part of the uh, transition. And I'm interested in some considerations around the Sonoran Lithium Project. This could be one of the largest lithium mines in the world when completed. However, it's a joint venture between Mexico's Bancora Minerals, and I'll have a further question about that, and China's Ganfeng Lithium. Do you see any risk in this project from expanding economic conflict between the United States and China currently? Bancora must be a national company as well, is it? I'm ignorant to that. Could you explain that to uh, Leonardo. Well, no, it's, um, well uh, recently, uh, Mexico announced the creation of uh, lithium, a state-owned company focused only for the development of lithium. Uh, so that company that you're referring to is actually a private company engaged in activities with a Chinese company. But, you know, the development that this administration in Mexico is foreseeing in that uh, field 
it's mainly driven by uh, this state-owned uh, company, Litio MX. But you know the challenges are there. Uh, the company was born without public budget. Uh, it only has uh, people uh, seconded from the Ministry of Energy uh, to uh, start developing the, the business plan of the company. And there's no additional resources to be appropriate, appropriated from the current budget for now. So um, there are not enough technical capabilities. There are not enough financial resources. And uh, certainly without those components, it would be rather difficult to actually see movement in, in that regard. Perhaps on the private sector side, I, I, I do not know what would be the, the terms of their engagement, but certainly uh, all the, um, the permits uh, that have been in place prior to the creation of these lithium MX and, and the last um, decree that was issued uh, for that uh, sector, uh, they will continue to, to be operating as uh, per the terms of those permits. Um, I don't think uh, it would create any threats on the relationship between Mexico and, and the US. Certainly, there are Chinese companies operating in the US, in Canada, and there are Canadian, Chinese, and uh, US and Mexican companies operating in China. So I, 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 I don't see a, a, a potential uh, area of conflict in, in this regard. You know, I'd like to come back to that at some point in the future and see where we're at. I, I guess that the timeline for this project is quite long then at this point, like we're not, it's a ways out there. So at this point, there isn't that much to worry about a pot simmering on the stove. Um, so thank you very much, uh, Leonardo, for coming on my podcast. I, I have a hundred other questions about Nexco, and I think what we should do is try to reschedule to see where things are in a year from now and have you on again. But before you go, um, we always ask our guests what they're reading or streaming these days besides their job. Us public <laughs> policy people are reading all the time, but what do you try, what do you read for pleasure? Well, actually right now I'm starting a, a book uh, that a friend of mine uh, gave me. It's called Good For Me, Great For You. And, you know, it's on negotiating and how to, you know, make sure that uh, all sat at the table actually have a better deal than where they were coming from. Who's the author? It's Lawrence Soskind. We'll make sure and put it up on the uh, notes to the podcast. Leonardo, thanks again for coming on. I enjoyed talking to you and learning a bit more about Mexico. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much, Kevin. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give it a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgaica support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. 
Thanks go out to our producer, Joe Kalnan, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed. Thank you.